You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Scott Ezel who's the author of Journey to the End of the Empire in China along the edge of Tibet. Hi, Scott. Hi, Manjula. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, you know, Scott, I've been reading a book and it's um, it presents this picture of Tibet, you know, and we have a strong Tibetan uh, community in India. So that's the reason I first picked it up because, you know, I've been to Dharamshala, I've, I know Tibetans. So, and, you know, it's part of our... Um, I mean, you know, in the 60s, the Dalai Lama came came to India and, you know, everybody has great respect for him. So that's the fir- first reason I picked up the book. And then, of course, you know, while I was reading it, it it's really interesting and it shows you what's happening, you know, the in Tibet. And it also re- made me think of India and the transformation that we are going through. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, I know you've spoken about, uh, you know, why you set out on this, uh, on the first journey to Tibet, but uh, mm-hmm. for the listeners, you know, tell us why you did this book, maybe, and you know how you started it. Well, I have a background in uh, indigenous and minority peoples in in Asia, and um, I lived and worked with an Aboriginal community in Taiwan, on Taiwan's Pacific coast, for about three years, and that experience sort of magnetized me to these questions of marginalization, um, borders, identity. Um, and so when I sort of finished my time there, I was, uh, I was sort of seeking to explore similar things in other, in other landscapes, other cultures. And, um, also because Taiwan is a very small island, I was really looking for expansive, wide, wide open landscapes. And that was the first journey that I took in Tibet in, in 2004. Um, and, uh, originally I began writing, what you could call a, a fairly straight um, travel travelogue, travel narrative, mm. um, and but over the years, I, I continued returning to these regions of Tibet over a fifteen-year period, and um, and I witnessed the changes, the transformations that were happening to communities and to landscapes, and um, this is part of a much larger global global issue: the way that landscapes are being transformed. Um, cultures are being assimilated, um, and uh, so I felt like it was important to not only to evoke the landscapes and the people of Tibet, which are unique and wonderful in their own ways, but also to show this transformation and connect it to larger, larger similar patterns across the globe. Mm. So, uh, for example, with the with the choice of the title, um, I. I I use the term empire frequently throughout the book, um, and it's because I feel like these patterns of empires and colonialism are, have been repeated across the globe, yes. um, in, in, including in, in India. So when I'm many many times when I'm making observations about what's happening in uh, in Tibet, I'll also reference similar things that are happening elsewhere. For example, in the United States, with genocide of indigenous people. Uh, usurpation of of lands, uh, the marginalizations of the the marginalization of the original indigenous people of of the United States. So um, I don't believe that Tibet is unique in facing these issues, but there is something unique about 
this land, the landscape, the territory where it's sort of considered the, the roof of the world or the third pole. Uh, it does have a mystique about it, and it's a very unique landscape. Like you said, I mean, there's this physical journey, but there's also the journey uh, inward where you're talking about things and, you know, and about issues that of like globalization and, uh, you know, environmental degradation and also about, you know, uh, poli political uh, power systems. So you want to talk about that? Um, sure. Um, political power systems. Um yeah, over a 15-year period, I saw um, a real tightening of, of authority, authority, uh, what I would call autocracy, militarization. Uh, for example, uh, in my first journey to Tibet uh, in 2004, uh, I was able to travel quite freely in eastern Tibet. Um, there are, were there were very few uh, police checkpoints, if any. Um, at one point, I even bought a secondhand motorbike because I just was tired of riding the bus. Um, and I was really able to travel freely, um, and there was very little military presence. As I returned um, over the next 15 years, uh, things changed to the point that uh, in, in 2019, um, when I was trying to return to one of these areas in Tibet before I even reached there, I was apprehended by police. It was kind of like a soft arrest, I, I guess you could say, because they just sort of tried to get me out of there. Um, but that that's kind of an ind indication um, of how things changed. And in terms of like uh, what you referred to as a sort of inner journey, um, you know, these travels began in a very different time. So if you had, a, say, a 10-hour bus ride, which I often did, um, you wouldn't be scrolling through your phone for 10 hours. Yes. You would be looking at the landscape and the people around you and, of course, in, into your own skull to uh, re reflect on yourself and the world and where you were and why you were there. Um, so I hope that the book retains that, uh, that element of, of introspection and the sense of, uh, of the long wavelength uh, that this, this kind of travel can have. Um, so I was, um, I was riding local buses that, uh, I would look on a map and it would look like it was about an inch and then the bus would take 10 hours going up and down mountains seemingly forever. And I thought, my God, how many more inches do I have to travel? <laughs> um, and at times, uh, I would jump, jump off the bus and walk, which is another form of reflection, um, lending itself to, the introversion or consideration of all the factors that, that one encounters. Um, and then I was also was hitchhiking, uh, which is its own mode of travel, which um, in which you sort of expose yourself to the unknown, the unpredictable. It's just almost a form of uh, improvisation. And uh, mm -hmm. you never know who you're going to meet or um, where you're where you're going to end up? I'm I'm about almost two meters tall, so I I never felt uh, in in danger when I was hitchhiking uh, <laughs> as 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 other people might or in other parts of the world. Um, so through these different modes of travel, I, I just had uh, different ways of interacting with the landscape and the people and with with my own locomotion locomotion through through the landscape and and through life through time. And um, I think in the end, um, that's what I hope the book has become. I hope it's a sort of navigation through these landscapes, but also through time as it covers this 15-year period. 
Mm. And and you know, in this uh, this paragraph really struck me because it's true. You know, we've just become so weird like this. Along the street, people were entranced by the devices. If I said something to someone standing above the river, they looked up as if startled from a reverie. And it's it's like this all throughout, even in rural areas now, where you know, one thought uh, people would be less enamored by their devices, but no, it's everywhere. So it's so you know, and and I was quite surprised when you you know when I read that bit, and I said there are no places which are free of this anymore. Clearly, yeah, we are all sort of prisoners of the uh, algorithms at this point, aren't we? Um, I think the <laughs> I think the powers that be, whether it's uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever anybody uses, they've sort of dialed into this uh, dopamine effect that that comes up um, mm-hmm. when we get some sort of stimulation or or quote-unquote reward so i don't think anybody's really immune to it um i think one interesting thing is the way that um in the west i'm I'm in the united states right now there's almost a a whole sector of sort of self-help guides for how to break up with your phone or how to manage your phone (laughs) yeah yeah um and um Sometimes I reflect that, yes, we have this kind of uh, information coming through media uh, at times here in the States, but, uh, you know, one must wonder uh, in, in a rural area, as you mentioned, is anybody helping them to <laughs> break up with their phones or, or get off the addiction uh, of their phones? So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very pervasive, and uh, I think it's a kind of uniformization mm-hmm. uh, where sort of everybody's getting on the same wavelength, everybody's looking at the same screen, um, it's this rectilinear, uh, two two dimensional piece of plastic, uh, and it's we're all sort of uh, enamored with it because it you know it triggers some some sort of a, a primal human response. Um, so in this sense, this is one of the ways in which the the narrative uh, is moving through time. Because of course, in two thousand four, um, if if we had phones, they were just the most basic flip phones. You would just use it for. Uh, well, what I think of is the real purpose of a phone to call somebody or yeah. to get information. And of course, now uh, it's expanded beyond that. But yes, uh, this this type of thing has has spread uh, throughout Tibet to the point that um, in my later journeys, I would arrive at a guest house and there would just be um, a, a WeChat number on the door. A WeChat is their version yeah. of WhatsApp in mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. So travel was almost predicated on on being linked into this system and and also you know while i was reading the book i was thinking that you know this uniform uniform is i uniformization <laughs> you know i might have i might have just made that word up <laughs> yeah but you know no, it's not just phones and devices but it's it's the whole you know everybody leading being pushed to lead the same kind of lives right and mm-hmm. aspire for the same kinds of things you know so uh you know nomads appear in your book but i'm wondering how long can people be nomads you know in that sense like traditional nomads and you know when when they're being displaced from their from from these vast spaces and animals are you know it's difficult to keep animals and stuff like that so that also struck yeah. me you know yeah this is um i think this is i think this is a global um issue and it's something that's been going on for quite a long time many of these issues um are not unique to tibet but they are very apparent there maybe more apparent than um elsewhere um 
So, for example, we have the same process of assimilation happening here in the States. But, um, you know, maybe nobody's really paying attention to the Indian reservations in, in New Mexico or to those communities and, and populations. Um, and, you know, because of its cachet, that gets uh, more attention. But this is a longstanding process of urbanization, um, cultural assimilation. Um, there's been uh, there's been a lot of human rights reports in the past year about residential schools um, yes. in Tibet, where children are being, um, well, they're basically being boarded uh, into a Chinese education system, um, which which could be okay, considering that they have to live in China, but there's a sort of severance of, of roots. Um, I did visit, in, in 2004, I did visit a school where children, nomad children came from miles all around to attend this school. Um, and it was a Chinese government school, but it was taught by Tibetans, and every day they would they would practice the, the traditional step dancing. So there, there is a balance, I think, where... Um, Indigenous customs and cultures can be can be maintained and passed down, and and children can also be prepared to live in in the modern world. Um, but in many cases, I saw uh, I think I've described it in the book that uh, in this process of assimilation and relocation, um, nomads or villagers would be moved from their traditional land. Uh, where they had these um, very non-linear, non-uniformalized communities, mm. um, where they had grazing land, land for gardens, and then uh, and, and a high degree of autonomy, uh, culturally and economically, and they would be removed to sort of prefab relocation centers where they would be um, given a certain level of of amenity, for example, electricity or televisions, uh, but they they would lose. Freedom. They would lose the ability to uh, to keep animals, to tend gardens. Um, so it's kind of this. Um, it's a bit of a um, bait and switch. Where yes, there are certain amenities, there are certain modern conveniences which are being acquired. Uh, but is anybody really tallying what is being lost? Uh, and I have observed the same thing uh, in other in other places, other other regions, among other indigenous and, and minority communities. Um, so one has to ask, well, uh, if you take an autonomous people that are um, self-reliant um, and they have land and resources at their disposal, and then you you put them in a concentrated, very linear, almost barracks-like uh, settlement, um, then what are they going to do? How are they going to live? Um, so they, it's a combination of dependence on government government handouts and then wage labor. Mm. Um, so yeah, as you said, everybody's sort of becoming um, coming uniform. It's not only cell phones; it's ways of life, and that's that's definitely uh, in, a, in an advanced stage, uh, at least in certain parts of Tibet. I should say at this point that Tibet uh, is a huge area, and like every place else, it's it's very localized. I'm sure someplace uh, far out on the range, there are still yak herders doing their thing, like they always mm. did. It's just sort of more that, um, well, uh, I could say maybe uh, just the hegemon is is closing in day by day, uh, and this is definitely something that I observed over this period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, like I said, when I was reading it, there were points when I I got kind of distressed, and so I was wondering about you, you know, 
while you're going through that landscape and you know and you clearly put down your notes you took notes very regularly you mentioned that in the book as well so you know talk about that but well this is this is difficult um yeah i've 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 done this kind of uh exploratory or or documentary work I, i call it lyric documentary work because i'm trying to explore these types of dynamics and issues but i'm not writing as a social scientist or a journalist i'm trying to express it maybe in lyric terms um in uh in an effort to make these landscapes and situations come alive in the way that a a news report is relevant but but might not have the ability to do and i um i feel like there was a period of years where i was really putting myself into these situations and i i almost felt like i was absorbing the damage that i was witnessing so there's tremendous ecological damage um through mining uh dams other forms of extractive uh of resource destructive resource extraction and uh, we're all observing the destruction of the earth um to some degree or, or another and i think that we do take this into our bodies and into our psyches and this is this is one of the challenges, one of the great challenges that we face today um, as we're looking at our phones and <laughs> we're seeing news of catastrophic fires or, or floods and we know that it's coming from climate change or we we can be quite sure that it is. Most people are quite sure that it is. Um, and yet we're implicated in these systems. Um, and I don't think there's really a sort of black and white answer how to navigate these systems. I think we're basically um, in this dynamic between authority um, and self-autonomy, and we all have to find find our way. Um, so yeah, how do we break free of these systems that may be antithetical to our own desires, our own principles, um, and yet maintain maintain ourselves, our lives, our families? Uh, I think this is this is really a day-to-day question. Uh, which goes back to the indigenous community that I lived with in in Taiwan. And that was the first time that I really experienced these issues uh, physically, that I was really present for them. Of course, I'd read a lot about um, the history of indigenous peoples um, in the United States and and elsewhere, but I'd never experienced it by being there day after day. And I, I observed these people who basically had to navigate questions of identity almost moment by moment were they going to identify as you know workers within within the state system or were they going to identify as indigenous people uh, with a separate origin and a separate set of values um and um so i think uh you know i, I don't think i'm uh, not trying to give anybody a blueprint for how to answer these questions for themselves but i i would be thrilled to hear that uh, it brought up the questions and gave people a sort of template to consider them because often especially if you're living in a in a city um, they may be somewhat abstract so yeah you know all these things are happening but it's all far away so um i think maybe one of the functions of the book could could be that it creates the experience of these dynamics and and people that are under undergoing these changes um and sort of serve as a window through which we can directly see what's happening, um, how these global policies are affecting people that um, may be outside of our our daily routine or our our daily purview. 
Mm-hmm. And this Lama was, what he had to say was really striking. I thought the guy who came back from Switzerland. Uh, we do everything we can to resist, but can anyone stop the leaders from doing what they want? Can you yourself live without electricity? Can you even eat without fossil fuels? If you can't avoid these patterns in your own life, how can you stop a system that's billion times larger? You might as well try to stop a hungry person from wanting to eat. I thought that was so insightful, you know, and and it's true. I mean, we are all implicated, right? So, but some of them, haven't you met people who are so big headed and they refuse to see? I'm sure they're there everywhere. So, you know. Yes. Um, I mean, I think the thing about... Uh... Tibetan people, as well as many other indigenous people um, I've had the chance to spend time with, is I feel that they're very grounded. Um, they have a strong sense of etiquette. Um, it's not necessarily important for them to state their views or beliefs, which is something that we're, we can be very bad about in the United States, thinking that what we feel or believe is the, the most important thing or the only thing that matters. Um, so I've, I've always been treated with incredible generosity and, and courtesy throughout Tibet. I have been surprised at times when um, when I met Tibetan people who would sort of um, parrot uh, a communist party line. Um, for example, um, the, um, well, at least in, I've heard that it changed, has changed, but at least when I was first uh, in Tibetan regions, it was illegal to have a photo of the Dalai Lama. Mm. Uh, and in there's a lot of propaganda against the Dalai Lama uh, and other other lamas in China, and I've actually heard Tibetan people parroting parroting um, that propaganda, which is really. I mean, they true. Which is they believe it, or they're just saying it because they want to kind of hide. I think there are some people that do believe it. Um, some people that maybe um, are in Tibetan regions, but maybe they've been. More influenced by uh, by state systems, the state economy, um, the education system. So, um, in these nomadic communities that we've that we've mentioned, um, there's a certain distance from from the state centers. But there are other people that are that are much closer to it, uh, more implicated in in the economic system, and uh, maybe being more influenced by uh, by the education system. So. Whether they're, um, whether they really believe this or whether they sort of uh, wishfully believe this just because they want to be on the side of the government, it's it's hard to say. Mm. Mm. Okay, uh, and I was quite surprised that there were Tibetans going from in going from India going back and you know coming back. And I, I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought you know, is that a sizable? Well, it's very, or? I think most of the I think most of the ones that have gone like have have already gone. Um, the one young man that I met, um, the only one that I personally met who had made this journey um, was when I was when I was first in Tibet in two thousand four. Okay. Um, recently, uh, when I was in Taiwan, I had the chance to meet some Tibetans who were born in India, so their parents had made that had made that journey. So I think it was an exodus primarily quite a while ago. So yes, one yes. of the one of the contexts for for all of this is the development of infrastructure in China. So if you imagine that you have a sort of state center Beijing or or the lowlands of eastern China wherever, um 
up until very recently, it would take days or weeks um, to get to to get to Lhasa. Uh, now it takes two days to get from Beijing to Lhasa by train. Um, and these roads are extending to all the borders. Um, so there's much more sophisticated infrastructure. So uh, I think the borders are more controlled now. And uh, I think it would be a much more difficult journey. So I, I personally have witnessed increasing militarization, not only of Tibetan areas, but of but of borders as well. Uh, this is one of the things that I, I saw change over this 15-year period. Mm. Do you want to read, read from the book, an excerpt? Yes. Um, yeah. So I was I was mentioning earlier some of the modes of travel travel that I that I took through Tibet. Mm. Um, this is a section earlier on uh, in the journey where I'm riding riding a local bus um, up a river and um, well along along a river. The the bus is not in the river, and um, we arrive at a, a local Tibetan village, and um, we'll we'll see some of the. Uh, issues narrated here that, that we've been discussing. I looked out the window straight down 500 feet at a bronze and copper-colored river, the Jinsha, Jinsha, uh, which means golden sand in Chinese. The surface was te textured like a Jackson Pollock painting with swirling lips of foam, torsion from unseen boulders. Feedback waves ripple upon themselves while across the valley Clusters of Tibetan houses sat on tendon and bone outcroppings of mountainsides, with sunflowers and apple trees growing in the yards. After descending from the plateau, the Jinsha would join the Yangtze and finally empty into the East China Sea. You'd never guess today that until recently, the Baiji, an endemic river dolphin, swam here for 20 million years, but they were caught for food by starving farmers during the famines of the Great Leap Forward, between 1958 and 1962. Recently, industrial pollution finished the job, and in 2006, they became the first dolphin to go extinct in modern times. We pulled over to patch a tire at a mechanic shop in a village that spanned the river. About 20 houses stood on each side, with a cable and gondola running in between. Women sat in the shade with baskets of walnuts for sale, but hardly made any effort to peddle them. Everything seemed flash-frozen in a state of inanition. The sun swung down like a plow blade to cleave you open, turn your guts to dust and light, set them free, return you to your primary components of blood and illumination. At the edge of the road, an old Tibetan man stood twirling a prayer wheel and looking down at a metal scaffolding extending across the river. His face was both smooth and wrinkled and reminded me of Edward Curtis' photos of American Indian chiefs. Men down below worked with picks, hacking into the stone of the river bank. A matrix of rebar flashed with welding flares, sectioning the space between the banks. Across the river, cement trucks drove in to deliver their loads. What's going on down there? I asked the man in Mandarin. He looked at me, then back down and said, they're building a dam. It will go all the way to the top of the gorge. Everything here will be flooded. But what will happen to you? I asked. We were born here, but we will have to go. We don't know where, but they will take us away to a relocation settlement somewhere. It will happen soon. But you'll get some compensation? I asked stupidly, as if getting a fair price were the most important issue for people being displaced 
from their homes by remote, anonymous authority. He shrugged and looked at me like he'd thrown all his words like horseshoes at an iron stake, only to see them lie useless in a dirt pit, and had no hope for them, even if everyone were a ringer. You see the girls here hauling stones in baskets, he said. The stones are for the dam. They will be crushed into gravel and mixed with cement. We are gathering the stones they are using to displace us. It's not easy to live here, but we survived. Our Buddhist temple shrine will go underwater too. But why are they building the dam here, I asked. For power, he said, as if it were self-evident, inevitable, inescapable, as if I were a simpleton to ask. They want more electricity to send to Chengdu, he said. Maybe they don't have any rivers there left to dam. Ah, yes, more power. Power to suck, power to drill, to locomote, to broadcast and enforce. There could never be too much power. The octopus, migrating across the land, reaching tentacles to untapped sources, connecting them back to a political center. The bus driver honked. The tire was patched. We drove on through the sun and stones. All around were chasms of broken rock, tiny streams cutting through like threads of tinsel. The valley walls were shaped and hollowed by millennia into myriad lips of stone, but would soon be, be supplanted by a concrete dam, square and monochrome, monolithic, right angles and straight lines of utility and decree. The landscape was being dug up, blasted out, strung with steel cables and blackened with grease, and I was just in time to catch a glimpse of it before it disappeared. The bus moved so slowly it was like something from a pre-industrial century. And this allowed me to unknit my skull and let the earth and sky pour into my mind. I tried to drink in all the mineral colors evolving past the dirty window of the bus. Tan, rust, ochre, sage green, a bar of silver and bronze high up on the canyon rim. It was all being raised, flattened, graded, scraped clean to create a flat earth and blank map space on which to build. The river dolphins were gone, never to return. Sun and shadows slanted through the walls of the gorge. The river churned like a scrap metal eel as we continued north, the dust of the road rising golden in our wake. You know, I mean, at some point you say that it was, I, I can't remember the line, but something about, you know, it being like a you know, like something hitting your bone, if I'm not mistaken, you know, seeing the destruction yeah. all around. So mm -hmm. it yeah, really is I that physical sense, right? So uh, wait. yeah, I think that's from the preface where um, this was kind of the transformation of this from a narrative, uh, from a geographic narrative into something that um, covered the span of time. Um, it was something, um, yeah, it was physical and. Uh, I, I believe that when you encounter this kind of destruction or violence, you really do absorb it into your body. Uh, I think it could even be called a form of trauma uh, that we then carry in our bodies. Um, and probably we're all uh, carrying traumas in our bodies these days. I was just talking to a friend who was telling me that uh, counseling centers are, are full here. Everybody wants to go to therapy now to try to get some perspective on life. I think we're all traumatized to some degree. And uh, in all these journeys, I I sort of felt like um, 
I had the opportunity to get here and, and witness these things, and I, I didn't want to let them uh, disappear or be paved over before somebody had the chance to witness and experience them and, and sort of call it call it back to the rest of the world. Uh, I hope that doesn't sound too indulgent, but I, I did feel like, okay, I, I'm here and, and nobody else is really doing this or, or saying this or, or documenting this. And um, I, wanted, I wanted to do that even as... Um, as, as you mentioned, I, I did feel at times that I was f physically being pummeled mm. uh, by what I was observing, um, and I thought, I, I, you know, I, it was not exactly a, in sort of an activist sense, uh, so much as trying to communicate a template to of, of what we seem to be witnessing all throughout the world. I mean, the things that I've yes. um, documented here or tried to evoke here—it's definitely not limited to Tibet. Um, no. It's happened every other landscape I've been in, and uh, everything else that I read in the newspaper seems to confirm that this is this is a pattern. It's a global pattern. It's not just like okay, um, Tibet is going th going through this. It's 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 a piece of a much larger puzzle. Mm. You know, and you know, I've often thought, and then when I was reading this, also I thought, you know, is it uh, is it that you know the human race is like self destructive in such or, uh, you know, and on some macro level that we, you know, that we're doing this because it's so obvious that, that you know, it's so obvious the destruction, but we can't stop it. You know, it's impossible. Almost. So, yes, um, that's, that's how it seems. Um, I, I, I sometimes, I, I wouldn't say I comfort myself, but I do admit the possibility of, of mystery. Uh, I don't think that we really know everything. No. And, um, humanity and, and the world as a whole has faced calamity and catastrophe in the past and and survived this and um I, you know so i i try to keep that window open um uh, that window of my own ignorance that i may not know something um something that's out there or something that's potential or or nascent in in the way things are mm -hmm. Okay, it's it's distressing to think that, and it's more. E it's I think it's sort of easier to think, you know, to when we can put a label on things, right? Like this bit also, you know, the eth ethno side of Tibet was behind, and the ethno side in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, uh, was in progress up ahead, with a million people confined to re-education camps, internment camps, and concentration camps, and that whole bit where you said every Uyghur living room now had a recording device mounted on the wall. Really, and everything—that's what I've heard. Is... That, that's okay. what I've heard from people who witnessed it. Um, so, um, it's it's surveillance taken to to the next level. Um, China itself, um, the level of surveillance is is frightening. Um, at an intersection, you'll see literally several dozen cameras. Um, it seems like every aspect of life is is surveilled. I think we've all read, um, you know, about the, the different, the different. Well, that as well. Um, but the different ways that that surveillance is is manifesting. Um, I don't know if it's the right moment, but I, I'm actually glad you mentioned um, that passage because when you're talking about the, the question of hope or what we're going to do, or is it just depressing and despairing? Um, the passage that you're referring to, it's it's at the very end of the book, after I traveled from the south end of the of the Tibetan plateau all the way over the north and then sort of back down. And in a way, uh it was it was sort of like returning to the police state or 
you could say that all of Tibet is also part of this police state, but where it's, where, let's say where it's uh, stronger or, or more concentrated. Um, and um, I myself had to be subjected to this uh, kind of police checkpoint. Mm. Um, and uh, I would just like to read the very, uh, well, the final, the final paragraph after all, all of that, mm. um, where I was forced to dump out the, the my precious fountain pen ink but i still had some left and uh yes. and this this also i think having a, a this, this um process of a manual form of expression i think is is important to me as well it's a form of resistance i think against the technological hegemon that we've been describing doing something with your body expressing your mind in a way that doesn't go through these you know four square inch screens um so um after the part that you mentioned um referring to the the Uyghurs and this uh this template um of um subjugation being pivoted from Tibet into Xinjiang um it ends with this I still had half a bottle of polar blue bulletproof ink guaranteed to resist water bleaches solvents petrochemicals and all known tools of forgers polar means it won't freeze you can write with it 40 below zero Bulletproof means it can never be altered or erased. Blue is the color of the sky and the color of the sea and of all the rivers running in between. So, as I said, I don't think I can offer a, a, a sort of black and white template of how to navigate these things, but I, I, I feel like um, this connection between these larger cycles and our own individual human cycles is, is something that we can try to cultivate and try to be aware of um, because we are part of much larger cycles. And um, I do think that's a awareness that we can we can try to maintain. Hmm. I don't know. I often think when you know when when one is traveling, like suppose I'm riding a bike through some beautiful landscape, and I come back, and I can al already see you know what happens. You can already see you know a garbage dump coming up somewhere close by, or some you know uh, development developmental works happening and you know it's going to go badly you know and then i think that i'm glad i'm like i'm old now because you know i'm I, one doesn't want to see the end of this you, you don't want to be around when it all goes to hell and then i wonder <laughs> if all you know if earlier generations i mean maybe a century ago did they also think of that you know did they also think of uh, of a looming crisis and is this is this what it means to be human you know to be always thinking that there's something horrible happening up ahead well um the american the 19th century american writer henry david thoreau he said i was born in the best place in the world and just in time and i think that's <laughs> i think that's a sense we all have because um we don't know what happened in the past i think definitely there's this sort of um process of supplanting technologies um people that were riding horses um they probably thought cars were terrible um, yeah. people that were, I don't know, sending messages, uh, by cable, they probably thought the telephone was terrible. And, um, you know, you and I, um, maybe we have experience of a previous iteration of technology and, um, that's our experience and we don't like it as much as what we have now. Uh, it, it does seem that this technological advancement is ac accelerating faster and faster. So, say, uh, changes in the last 10 years or 
20 years are just absolutely crazy. I mean, you imagine that you know, Google is only, what, 20 or 25 years old, and yeah. you can hardly imagine living without it. Uh, yes. You can hardly imagine living without a cell phone now. I mean, how fast they supplanted the, the previous technologies. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we all have our, those of us who are fortunate enough to have a little bit of time and energy at the end of the day after we're done with our responsibilities, um, you know, we have the potential for resistance against these things, whether it's playing music. Uh, I still write with a fountain pen and type with a manual typewriter, not all the time. Uh, I'm not a complete Luddite. Of course, I use computers as well. Um, I would never finish a single book if I was only writing with my typewriter <laughs> and 500 yeah. bottles of whiteout. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think things that I think people are starting to realize they're becoming disembodied. They're becoming disconnected from their own bodies, and people are looking for different ways to reconnect. So that's always potential, um, and it's a form of it's like a form of struggle, you know, like for, it's just like struggling against political oppression, struggling against technological oppression. I think it's quite similar. Mm. Nobody's going to come in and save the day. Yeah. We kind of have to try to hack out some space for ourselves uh, within, within the walls that are containing us. Mm. Mm. And tell me, you know, do you, to go back to your travels, um, what was the one point where you, you know, where you felt really free? Well, I think I think I've I've been very privileged to be able to travel in this region, and um, I mean, I think almost any time you're on a you're on a bus and you're heading someplace unknown, you're you have it's an incredible sense of freedom, and uh, I think it's addictive, and that's why many people who become expats or travelers they sort of remain that way because uh, it is a kind of freedom you. Um, when you're home, um, you sort of have uh, a sense of obligations or, or imperatives, and suddenly when you're on, on the road, um, there's nothing that you're supposed to be doing. So there's a there's a liberation in, inherent in that. Mm. Um, so I think any time that I've been on the road, I've I've felt that, and um, I've um, I've also sort of like tried to push push the envelope a little bit in terms of like traveling into prohibited zones or close to forbidden borders, those kinds of things. Um, and um, I don't know if that's a different kind of freedom, but I think it's a, to me, it's, a, it's, it's an important form of self-expression, um, sort of like, I don't know, uh, trying to refuse to be, to be contained uh, or to, to leave landscapes undiscovered, maybe would be a good way to put it landscapes or uh, or dynamics that are unfolding uh for example uh, further south from tibet uh in china there's a long border with with myanmar mm. and much of that border is controlled on the other side by uh, ethnic ethnic minority armies um so over the years i was traveling in and out of those areas and i also saw that area become more heavily militarized and, and surveilled mm. um and I felt um, I felt it was important to to push that, even though I would be arrested or kicked out or <laughs> escorted away by cops. I, I will tell a brief anecdote about this. Actually, um, so in the last time I was able to visit Tibet was in 2019. Okay, um, right before the pandemic and many other things, of course. And I actually made two trips to Tibet at that time. Um, 
I was trying to enter from the south, and um, I had done a long documentation process on the construction of dams on the Mekong. And uh, I think it was maybe maybe in March. I was living in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand at the time, so I was I was reasonably close. I returned to China and I I navigated up to the Mekong and I um I got to the river and I started walking because I wanted to approach the dam that way. One of the largest dams in China is right there on the Mekong. Uh, it's called the Huangdong. Mm-hmm. And before I even got close to it, I was I was picked up by security. Um, somebody reported me, and they took me to the cop station and kicked me out. And that made me really mad. That made me like stubborn. Like, okay, you guys don't want me to see that. <laughs> I'm going to find a way. So, um, just out of pure stubbornness, I went back a few months later, and um, I went around the other way. I approached from from the north. There's a whole series of dams there, so I, I approached them from the north. And uh, I, I somehow finagled uh, my way into renting a renting a motorcycle from a from a mechanic, who I guess didn't know any know any better, and uh, managed to conceal myself and my foreignness as I was driving down Ow. there. Ow. Um, and I got there. So yeah, I, I rode up and down. What's that? <laughs> How did you manage to conceal your foreignness? <laughs> you know. Well, because I was on a motorcycle. Okay. So, so I would. I yeah. would. You know, I had this very, I had this very cheap, crappy helmet, but it had a, it had a sort of a sun visor. So anytime okay. there was a car coming that it looked like it might be official, I would try to duck my head <laughs> so nobody could see my uh, my foreigner's nose. Um, anyway, so for me personally, uh, I don't know if this really answers any larger questions about these dynamics, but I felt it was important to push against these authority structures and to say, okay, I we know this is happening and. Um, you know, we're I, everybody knows what's happening, but uh, to be able to witness it is was something important for me personally. Uh, whether it has any value beyond that, I I can't say. But um, I've done my best to transmit it uh, beyond my own well, beyond my own experience. Hmm. And this whole thing, uh, the the funny bits were when you know, right through our people asking you whether you were normal in America. I mean. yeah that's kind of a recurring theme i mean that's um that's the kind of thing that uh as an american in 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 asia that uh what that you'd be asked a lot like uh are you normal are you friends with michael jackson or uh, do you like madonna (laughs) many many sort of questions like this but uh um yeah, because i'm i mean i'm even tall for for the u.s so i was i was towering above most most people all over Asia and in, in China. So people would say, yeah, are you normal? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not normal anywhere. <laughs> yeah, not only in terms of my height. <laughs> okay. And on that note, we'll end. So for, for the readers, go out and get Journey to the End of the Empire in China along the edge of Tibet by Scott Ezel. Ezel, I've, I've got it right, right? It's it's, it's Ezel, but very Ezel, close. Okay. Ezel. Scott Ezel. So this is a great it's a really interesting book and it'll make you think a lot and maybe about things you don't want to think about, you've you know. But um and it's also very lyrical, you know, poetic in many parts. All, all the landscape descriptions are really lovely. And uh, so it's it's 
go out and get it and read it. It's really a very good book. Thank you so much, Scott, for talking to me. Manjula, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Hold up. 